You're listening to the Pop Tart Podcast. Girls down. You already know. You have to, at the same time, be like a hapless passenger on a bus and the bus driver. Three big things in life are like career, uh, money, and love, right? And like those are like the things like people ask psychics about. I have my mind in the gutter, and I'm also telling you the most beautiful thing you've ever heard about your own soul. Nobody is better than me. Also, nobody is inherently worse than me. <laughs> Some people are worse than me, but like not not most people. Do you know what I mean? Like, hello, hello. And welcome to Pop-Tarts. I'm Emily Rems. I'm the managing editor of Bust Magazine in New York City. My co-host Callie is on vacation today, but that's okay because I still have an amazing guest who I'm so excited to speak to. Today's guest has one of the most creatively fulfilling quarantines of anyone around and the projects that she's putting out now as a result are kind of blowing my mind so I've been very excited to speak with her. Natalie Morales is an actor, director, writer, and activist best known for her on-screen work on Dead to Me, The Little Things, Spider-Man, Into the Spider-Verse, Abby's, and Parks and Rec among her many credits. But this year she also emerged as a feature film director with an incredibly relatable and undeniably feminist point of view. First, she released the teen road trip comedy Plan B on in May on Hulu about two high school girls who have a wild adventure trying to get their hands on the morning after pill in South Dakota. And on September 10th, she's releasing the astonishingly poignant film Language Lessons in theaters about an unusual relationship between a lonely man and his online Spanish teacher. I absolutely loved both films. I'm so excited to talk to her all about them. Welcome, Natalie, to the show. Yay, you're here. Thanks. Well, I, I, as I said, I'm so excited to talk to you about these movies. They both really brightened my uh, few last few months. Um, but before I do that, I would like to start with your origin story. I know that you grew up in a Cuban family in South Florida. Can you tell us how you got your start in showbiz and what your journey has been like establishing yourself as a writer and director after so many years as an actor? Um, well, thank you. First of all, that's my dog barking in the background. If you hear him, Hi, doggy. Uh, <laughs> that's Taco. And yeah, I um, I'm from uh, I'm from Miami. Um, my my whole family are um, Cuban refugees, and I moved out to uh, LA when I was 20 um, to pursue acting. I didn't I didn't even really I mean. First of all, it took a lot for me to, to even think that acting was a possibility for me. So writing and directing were much, much further in the, in the, in the view of like something I could ever possibly even do for a living. Because um, I thought, you know, you had to go to film school and you had to be like a white man to, to direct, right? Because that's like all I had really seen. Um, or you had to be incredibly special in some way, which, uh, you know, I, I later found out is not true. Um, and, uh, and so I, I, yeah, I, I, I auditioned a lot, a lot, a lot. Um, and I, uh, got rejected a lot, but I did get some parts eventually. And then I, I, um, I, I started acting in, in a lot of my favorite shows and, and, um, and movies. And, um, 
somewhere at the beginning there, I mean, I, I had directed theater and sketch before, but somewhere around there, I, I was noticing that, you know, even though I was getting some roles, it was, it was always relegated to like the best friend or the, you know, or the, the, sassy person in the office who rolls her eyes or like, you know, I've noticed that I've noticed you being the friend in so many things. Yeah. Which is, which is fine. And is, and is a starting point, um, for, for a lot of things, but I think specifically, you know, uh, being Brown has a lot to do with, uh, how long you stay in those roles. Uh, not all the time, but, but, uh, in a lot of cases, that's, that's, that's the, you know, especially when I was first, starting out, which wasn't that long ago, um, I, I I did feel like Latina women were not the leads of anything unless they were like the sexy seductress or like the tough New Yorican girl or something, right? Or um, maybe, maybe the maid or maybe a combination where they were like a sexy seductress maid, right? But like, it was only those New Yorkian, yeah. Right. It was only those like stereotypes of Latinas that I really saw in media, and and um, the other roles, the roles that I was getting, I felt very lucky to get because they weren't in those stereotypical roles, and 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 I felt, I felt that even then, like my my very very talented friends who um, are are all sorts of different marginalized groups in a lot of ways, um, were also not getting roles that I thought that they could kill, right? They could crush. And so I started to write quite a bit because I thought, well, if I write some stuff and I, and I somehow, you know, get it to someone to get it made, then maybe we'll all have these chances to play something other than the stereotype. And then, and then I was like, I don't know what they're like. Many, who am I going to give this to direct? Who's going to get it? Like, they're not going to get this stuff. So then I was like, I, I should, I should maybe look into directing. So I started directing like all of my friends' music videos. I have a lot of friends in bands and I started doing that. And then I started pitching stuff to funny or die and directing different little series and, uh, and sketches for them. And, um, and I went to my agency at the time and I was like, I, can I please, you know, meet with the, the directing agent? I really, you know, want to pursue this. And they were like, sure, sure, sure. And then they never, ever let me meet with them. Uh, it was like, after a year, I left them because they never got me a meeting with a directing agent within wow. my own agency. Um, and then the new agency that I went to, um, I, I was like, please keep your word on, on, uh, actually focusing on this as a part of my career. And thankfully they did. Um, they really did. They really have supported my directing career since day one, which uh, I'm very thankful for. And then also um, Mark Duplass, uh, um, you know, saw a music video that I directed for this musician, Andrew Bird, and liked it and asked me to direct an episode of Room 104. Um, and that is the reason I was able to join the Directors Guild. And, and that is the reason I was able to um, get Plan B and, um, and kind of legitimize myself more as a, as a director that was like, you know, in a union and, and in the business uh, even more. So that's been the journey. And, and I've kept writing uh, alone and with my business partner this whole time. And, and, um, and that's, where I'm, that's where I am right now. Things have been Things have been after Plan B came out, and after um, this this movie did a bunch of festivals. It's been interesting because I've I, I, now people are paying a little bit more attention and, and are like I, I'm I'm you know it's it's really it's 
it's it's been a really interesting shift and and um you know what a big big difference somebody like mark giving me that one opportunity has made not not to say that there wasn't a lot of effort put in by me and other people before that but but it was this one risk that he took um that really shifted things in a very very big way I love that. And I have to say that we're we're big fans of yours at Bust. You were uh, just recently in Bust magazine. And yeah. like when we saw language lessons and when we saw Plan B, we were like, yes, like this chick fucking gets us. Like she's here <laughs> on the same wave. Like we were just so excited. Like we just want to see like every single thing that you're doing because like hey. as soon as we saw your plan B and then language lessons, we were like, oh yes, like finally someone's making movies for us that we can watch and like and enjoy. Um, You know, not obviously you're not the only person, but we just, we just are definitely picking up what you're putting down and we're really excited. Thank you. That Um, means a lot to me. Thank you. So I'd love to dive in and talk about language lessons first, which you said uh, you directed and you co-wrote with your co-star Mark Duplass and which comes out September 10th. Like I was totally sucked into the authenticity of the characters and the real suspense that you two built over the course of your conversations it, in a way that felt so effortless. It really kind of almost felt like a magic trick. I'm Thank so you. curious about how you made it like specifically, like how much was written, how much was improvised and how many versions of each conversation did you work through to make it come out so tight and like just right. Well, thank you for saying that. Um, it was it was a crazy fast and a process that I that I you know I've never really done before, and I don't know that I'll ever do again. Um, not only not only because it was crazy, but but also because um, it was just you know the nature of this particular project and this particular time. Um, so Mark Mark kind of pitched me this idea because he was. Um, I didn't say this already. Correct me if I've said this because I've done a lot of interviews today. But uh, did he? Did he? Did I tell you that he uh, was taking Spanish classes already, or no? No, no. Okay, great. His Spanish right. is really great. good. Great. So he, um, at the beginning of uh, lockdown and the beginning of the old panty, he was taking some Spanish classes um, from a school in Guatemala, and um, and was writing and was doing his normal thing. And then our our friend Lynn Shelton died. Who um, who I admired very much and knew, knew a little bit. And Mark was very close to and, and knew a lot. Um, and because he already kind of knew some Spanish with his Spanish teacher, he was talking, um, he, he had more conversational lessons where he was just talking about like life and stuff instead of just like whatever. And after they ended up talking about Lynn uh, when she died and he called me afterwards and was like, Hey, do you speak Spanish? And I was like, see, and uh, he was like, uh, so I have this idea that because like we're all in lockdown, we can't see anybody. We're literally in our own homes. It was like a month into it all, two months into it. And um, and he's like, all I have is a Spanish teacher and, and her student and that they become friends. That's that's all I got. Do you want to write a movie about this with me and, and do it? And I was like, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I had just come uh, plan B which I've been working on since like 2018. Um, uh, I was in Syracuse uh, getting ready to film it. Like, you know, sets had been built. People's hair had been bleached. 
it was all about to happen. And then we got shut down the Friday before the Monday when we were supposed to start shooting. Um, so I, I was uh, sad and also sad about the world. And, um, and I, I was actually writing a movie with uh, my best friend at the time when Mark said this. So I was like, yeah, okay, I can write that in the mornings and shoot this in the afternoons if, I, if we do it. So anyway, we, we started, um, we decided to take these two characters that he had come up with, the teacher and the student, and we would go off separately and write biographies uh, on them and then come back together, show each other what we got and, um, and, and figure out a way to collide these two characters and make something interesting uh, about them. And, um, and we did that. And, and the entire span from him calling me to our, our like last thing we shot together was like four weeks. Um, we shot the movie in, I think four and a half days and they weren't full days. Like I was saying, I was writing this other script in the morning and I was shooting language lessons in the afternoons. And, and um, part of that was a lot of the script was written and we followed it as written, especially the, the, the parts that are mostly in Spanish because we wanted to get a lot of it right um, in that sense. But also a lot of the script, especially the more they get to know each other was improvised in that we knew what we want. We would took it scene by scene or lesson by lesson. And we knew what we wanted out of the scene. We knew how it had to begin and end. And we knew uh, the emotional beats we wanted to hit and maybe some information we wanted to get out and, uh, and, and just little plot points that we wanted, but we want uh, purposely wanted to keep it as loose and as unrehearsed as possible so that it did have that like, natural first time feeling to it because if that's all you're looking you know there's nothing there's nothing to hide behind it's just both of our faces the whole time so we wanted to keep it as natural and fresh as possible so that like if you saw me laughing at a joke you wouldn't be like god she looks like she's laughed at that joke for 15 takes you know like you know what i mean most most of these things were were really uh were really us uh <laughs> improvising which is which is a weird thing to do as a as somebody who does a lot of comedy I'm, I'm used to improvising I'm not so used to improvising in dramatic situations and I'm also not used to improvising when I'm also driving a story point forward and also thinking about directing the thing um and acting in it and so it's it's interesting Mark said said it in this really great way he's like you have to at the same time be like a hapless passenger on a bus and the bus driver. Like you have to like not, you have to act as though you don't know what's going to happen in a scene while your brain is fashioning a way to get to what you know needs to happen in the scene. Um, and it was really challenging and, and, and really fun to do in a lot of ways. Um, especially when you're doing it in a language you don't speak all the time. Like Spanish is my first language that I spoke as a baby, but it's not what I've spoken most of my life or, or even every day. So to be like someone who knows Spanish well enough to be a teacher is like a, a little bit challenging. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that was, that was kind of the, the, the scope of how we, how we got it to feel, you know, as natural as possible. And then of course comes the whole editing part of it, which is super challenging because there's nothing to cut to. There are no other shots there's just uh, our faces. Face. Uh, yeah. I mean, any other movie or TV show, you know, someone is shot from the front and then also from the back or from the side or from whatever. And you have other things to cut to when someone 
messes up or says the wrong word or it's not the first half of the scene is more interesting than the second, right? And um, and that was a, was an interesting editing challenge in itself. And and we we figured out and built all these different ways to hide these cuts and to make make it happen and and hopefully just make you feel like you're just watching a conversation as it unfolds. And and a lot of it is like one long shot. Um, but but there are a lot of I mean our editor Alishka Ferrero is incredible. Like I, I think Mark and I both were like. Know if this is going to be any good like this this might be really boring and we might have to just bury it entirely and it was a fun experiment to do but who the hell wants to watch like two people just talk at each other for two hours or whatever right and um we we didn't really know if we had something worthwhile until aleshka put together her first like assembly of the movie and we were like oh oh there's a movie in here somewhere like that's interesting and we had to figure out a lot of how to hone it in and and exactly as you said like how, how that that premise sounds boring to me. Like I don't want to watch anybody on Zoom. You know, like I I totally understand why someone would feel that way. And so we tried really hard to make it not feel that way. You know, not when you watch it. We tried really. There's a we don't really talk about Zoom. We don't talk about the pandemic at all. We don't talk about anything. It's really just these two people getting to know each other in a format that whether you like it or not, you're super familiar with now. So it feels like something, you know, and, and, um, and it's, it's crazy how that turned out, but it did. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. It, de- it definitely snuck up on me where I was like, Oh my God, what's going to happen? Like <laughs> Good. It, it felt like you were totally natural and totally improvising and just talking to each other as friends. But the story arc was so deftly plotted that I knew that there was like a lot more going on than two friends talking. And I just found it really impressive. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Something else that I responded to um, is the fact that it's a beautifully ambiguous love story that, it sort of reminded me, I don't know if you saw that film Together Together with Patty I haven't Harrison seen it yet, but I, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. I, I, I heard it was great. It, we're just sort of in this time where love stories don't always have to be like what we know of as love stories. And that's what reminded me of that film. It unfolds in a way that, like you said, is so relatable to those of us whose lives have been totally changed forever by Zoom and by COVID, but also by just the social breakdown of barriers around sexual orientation and relationships and like, I am this thing and I am that thing and we are this thing. Like, it feels like a lot of barriers were just completely being demolished before COVID. And now we're all um, interacting so much just like with ideas between screens, which seems to Take, when you take out the physical element, it almost sort of blurs those lines even more. So your two characters build this very, very strong bond that also that just totally defies the traditional romance mold. Yeah, it's, it's inherently platonic from the very beginning. Yeah, it can't not be. Mm-hmm. But I don't. I feel like I want to be very careful because I I want um, our listeners to watch the movie and experience like the the many twists for their themselves but I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on the journey that these two characters take and what the future might hold for them because I I know just sort of like the way the story goes like it can't really have a satisfying sequel but I just want to know 
what happens <laughs> next and how you and Mark navigated this very tricky chemistry as co-writers. Um, well, I will say, I'll, I'll answer your question about what happens next first. I don't know. I don't know. It's part of like the joy of making a movie like this. And, and, you know, I don't know, we both really love these characters too. And, and not that indie sequels are profitable in any way, but, uh, you know, maybe we'll make one. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I think that, you know, the platonic friendship thing was something that we, we wanted from the very beginning, because I think not only is my relationship with Mark a, a platonic friendship one where, where we both really, really appreciate each other and, and are very curious about each other and, and want to learn more and want to work with each other and, and care for each other very deeply at this point, especially, um, but we have those relationships in our lives and, and especially like the, you know, the relationship between like gay men and women is something that um, has such a big and rich history, like really throughout time. And it has been typically relegated to like the side characters and any movies or, or anything and not the, the primary um, relationship. And, and I think in many ways, um, like platonic love is, is, kind of more interesting to dramatize and to look at than romantic love because we've done and seen romantic love so many times in so many different ways. And of course it's, it can still be interesting, but uh, you know, it, platonic love has not really been done. And by the way, that's not something we even, we knew that we wanted to make it about a platonic relationship, but we didn't know, we didn't realize that there weren't any movies about this until after we saw it and everyone started calling it out and we were like, Oh yeah. Because to us, it's like, you know, I, I don't know, a, a romantic relationship has these like predetermined steps that we all know, which is like you date and then, you know, you decide to become exclusive and then you say, I love you. And then you give someone your key and then you move in together and then you get married, you get engaged and then you get married, right? Like there's all these like, and of course there's variations in those in everybody's relationships, but for the most part, that's the like linear route that's been established in our society of, of romantic relationships. And for platonic relationships, like, when do you say, I love you? When is it cool to say that? When do you get deeper? When do you pull back? How much is too much? Um, and, and those are really interesting things that I think hopefully we all know, like hopefully we all have friends that are close enough to us that this is a that this is a something that we've navigated before and and um, I find that to be really really interesting to see and just as important and just as emotional like you know my 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 best best friends like if something happened with them or if I wasn't getting along with them or if I got in a fight with them would be maybe more devastating than a romantic partner you know like it would be like really really. Uh, uh, horrible. I, I don't know. I, I think that they're just as important and just as vital as these other relationships. And I think maybe the reason it hasn't really been done that often is, is because we, we tend to concentrate, like I was thinking about this earlier today, like, you know, we tend to concentrate like on the three big things in life are like career, uh, money and, and love. Right. And like, those are like the things like people ask psychics about, <laughs> like, those are the things, but, but friendships are so important and so necessary. And, and I don't know that we give them enough 
enough credit and uh and I'm, I'm i'm just really i'm happy we sort of stumbled upon this only because that was what felt right to us in the moment not not because we were like you know looking at the zeitgeist and being like there's not enough of this let's make it you know but i'm i'm excited that it happened um i'd also like to talk a little bit about your other recent film plan b which is on hulu right now everybody can just jump on and watch it right now which i also really really loved in many ways it's a traditional teen comedy about two girls who have a wild caper but the fact that the two teens are girls and their adventure is necessitated by the fact that one of them really needs the morning after pill and they live in south dakota where young women have extremely limited access to reproductive health care it makes it just such a smart and political and urgent and deeply relevant twist on like the traditional teen caper genre unlike language lessons this is not a project that you wrote so i'm so curious about how and why you came on board and decided on this script as your feature film debut um well exactly for the for the reasons that you said when you described it um when i read the the scripts the first script i was like oh there's something really special in here that i think i could i could bring to life in a way that would make me really happy and like my teenage self really happy and also I don't know I like I like subverting a genre and I like I I like making it not what you expect it to be and I also you know having been a, a teenager at a point in my life myself but also like a rabid movie watcher grew up on all these teen movies that I like loved and and for the most part especially like you said the teen caper or the teen like quest movies were always men at the forefront you know and or boys teenage boys and 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 there were always like a quest of like i gotta get to the i gotta get this letter to the girl or i gotta get you know to the cool party or i gotta get to um get my dad's car back in time or whatever it is right and 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 i and so i knew like i could make i could give girls this movie and have it be just as like gross and raunchy <laughs> and insane as all the movies we grew up seeing, but also visually beautiful and and very funny, and and hopefully if it's doing its job, also have the moments of like real heart and real uh, humanity that I want to see in everything, you know, like and I think both things can exist. Like you can be that. I mean, that's my own brain. It's, it's disgusting and sappy all at once. It's the, you know what I mean? Like I, I have my mind in the gutter and I'm also telling you the most beautiful thing you've ever heard about your own souls. You know, like that's how my, that's how my brain works. And, and, and I think that like, uh, getting to do that was, I mean, monumental for me, but like I, I, at the time I had only, directed, I think, one episode of Room 104, not two. So I'd only done one episode of TV, and I and I, I got the script again because my agents were awesome, and were like, you, uh, we're going to push you to, to meet with these producers. And the producers uh, um, at the time uh, that, had, had, that were on there were um, the people behind uh, Harold and Kumar and Blockers, and uh, they do Cobra Kai, and they had done some of the American Pie stuff, and I was like, okay, there is no way in hell I'm going to get this because I've never directed a feature and I've only done one episode of TV before. Like, there's no way I'm going to get this. 
but I see it. Like I see, I see a way to do this that is going to be different and that is, you know, that, it, that will make me happy. So all I can do is go in there and pitch them my like insane idea for how to make this what I see it can be. And, and if they don't like it, great. Then it's not the movie I wanted to make anyway. And, um, and if they do like it, then I got to figure my shit out and figure out how to do it is how to do what I say I want to do. Cause just as I, I visualize something some way, doesn't mean I can actually do it unless I actually figure out how to do it. Right. Um, especially never having directed a feature before. Um, and so, so I did that. I, I pitched them this crazy idea where I was like, you know, Raising Arizona is a, a hilarious movie that also looks incredible. Why don't teen girls get that? Why can't we have it? <laughs> like, why isn't there like full frontal insane nudity in a movie uh, for women? Oh my God. That was, <laughs> like, was so like, crazy. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, we deserve it. We deserve it. We, I want that. And, and I, and I think all these things can exist in this movie. I think I, I think I can make it just as, crazy and just as raunchy and also just as special and just as beautiful as anything else. And they took a chance on me, uh, luckily. And, um, and, uh, and I, and I'm really happy that I got a chance to do it. It really like, I think it'll, it's amazing for teens, but it's also amazing for those of us who are very super connected to our own teen selves. Like the, the friendship between your two main characters was so amazing. It really made me think back specifically to the one time that I needed to find the morning after pill. I was living in Arlington, Virginia, and I was 24. And at that particular time in my life, like I've always been a girl's girl, but at that time I was mainly hanging out with gay men. So I remember I was alone on that day when I picked up, I went to Planned Parenthood and then I had to pick up the pill at a separate pharmacy. And I took the pill in my car and I was by myself. And by the time I got home, I was so nauseous that I didn't even like make it inside. I just like fell to my knees and started puking on my front lawn in the middle of the afternoon. And like, <laughs> like after watching your movie, it just made me wish that I'd had a girlfriend there with me to hold my hair or like something. It also just made me feel so grateful that Planned Parenthood was there for me when I needed them. And just to really like think, you know, like personally, viscerally, emotionally, about like that day to sort of fuel the fact that I'm like a professional feminist and I work at a feminist magazine and like, you know, like I do the work every day, but it's easy, you know, like I've been doing it for 20 years to get on robo, like autopilot a little bit, but like, it was very helpful to, to access like that exact feeling of like needing the pill and needing to get it and being by myself. And like, I I really appreciated the film in that way to bringing me back to the urgency of like what the what the whole thing is really about. Have Thank you, you found for that sharing you're... that with me? That's that means a lot to me. Thanks. Oh yeah, you're so welcome. Have you found that your film has brought up similar emotional responses from women who connected to this specific quest that these girls are forced to go on because of the national fuckery around women's health? Big time. Um in a lot of ways, I've gotten a lot of messages about that. I've also gotten a lot of messages about, you know, people, kids being like, I'm going to come out to my parents because I saw your movie. 
which is also another element of it that's very, very near and dear to my heart um, because that was that was me in, in high school. Um, and uh, it 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 really does mean a lot to me because, I, you know, I I I watched movies as a way I still do as a way to like connect to the world and learn about the world and, and see other people besides the people in my own community. And, and so the fact that, that my movies are doing that for people is, is, um, and, and are reaching them in a different way or, and, and mean something to them. And, 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 you know, either, like you said, make them remember a time in their life and make them connect with something or, or make them feel understood in some way. Um, is really cool. And, and I also think like, there's so many people, another, another sort of like big part of this that, that sounds dumb, but it's true is that like the sex education in this country is so bad that in the process of, of doing press for plan B, I, I met quite a lot of people who think that the plan B pill or that the morning after pill is an abortion pill. And by the way, my mom included thought that, and it's not, it's scientifically impossible for that to be the case. Um, and, and so many people are not taught that I'm, I'm not even saying that people are dumb. I'm saying that nobody teaches anything. No, they don't teach it properly. Um, You're absolutely and, right. and it's still today, like abstinence is, is, uh, is, mandatory education in most of the states in, in the United States. Um, I think it's 28 states. You must inf- uh, like really uh, not, what's the word, uh, uh, highlight abstinence as the solution to this one. Like we know that doesn't work. Like you're a human being. You're going to want to have sex. So like teach people what happens, teach people what periods are, teach people what the, the plan B pill is, teach them the side effects of birth control pills, teach them what condoms do, teach them how to put on condoms. Like don't, if you create like, and I also don't understand like people that are, that are, you know, anti-abortion, not wanting people to have this education because if you have the education and if you have access to birth control and if you have access to emergency birth control like the plan b pill there will be less abortions there will be less unwanted children right um so i it's really confounding in general and and i also am very proud of putting information out into the world in the the form of like consumable media that's entertaining where people can go like, I I really had to make a point in the movie of any time they talked about pregnancy or whatever, be like, I could get pregnant, you know, like I am not currently pregnant. That's not how it works. Um, And even still people watch the movie and there's, there's media out there that are like, this is a movie about getting the abortion pill still. And, and it's, it's, wild it's wild so so even just a little bit of sex education on my end was worth doing <laughs> now i would like to ask you natalie morales are you a feminist of course who isn't <laughs> some people are not i'm glad that you i think say it's just because are. they don't know the definition Sometimes that's the case. Yes. Um, wh- how would you say your feminism has impacted your career or vice versa? My career has impacted my feminism. Interesting. Um, 
again, I think it's like, I don't do anything because I am a feminist, right? Like, I'm not like, well, I'm a feminist, so I got to do things this way. <laughs> like, that's not how I work. You know, I don't do anything because I am anything. I just am, right? And, and so, therefore, I have this perspective. To me, and, and, our, uh, and the actual definition of feminism is just equality between sexes, right? And, and um, I, I was fortunate enough to be raised by a, a mother who let me never squash that belief where I was like, they can do it, I can do it, you know? And, and I think that is what led me to direct. Uh, I, I saw, I mean, honestly, the biggest inspiration to directing was seeing a lot of really bad male directors <laughs> and, and, and to be fair also some bad female directors right but like uh but just like a lot of people who I was like oh you had every opportunity you went to film school you have been given this is your 90th job and you suck you suck you suck and like I don't know shit about this and I could do it better than you can and I know that in my heart and so that's definitely a way that my career has affected my feminism in that it's proven it to me uh, in that like I've had these experiences where I'm like, oh, I, I'm put in this position where I know that this guy is like that I, I, my, I think what I was saying before about, you know, my, my own um, opinions and experiencing not experiences not mattering I realized over the last year getting over this sort of imposter syndrome which does have a lot to do with me being a woman and with me being all this inherent misogyny that's like built in inside of us right that we don't even realize until we kind of come to terms with it and parse it all out um you know I think there was this imposter syndrome for so long with me directing because I I I uh, not only education wise, because I, you know, my, I come from a really poor family who didn't even have the money to, to, I got a scholarship to my schools, but no one told me like, Hey, you design, you're a fucking 17 year old who designs fonts in her spare time. Look at design. Like, I didn't even know that was a thing. You know, no one was like, go to film school. If you like this, like that, that wasn't an opportunity afforded to, to kids like me. I didn't even get I didn't get, I didn't even get the advice to get education. <laughs> like I just got the general like immigrant, like get a college degree or your life's going to be over, you know, like I got no other advice for you besides that. Um, so like I, I did spend so much of this like uh, energy on this imposter syndrome of like, you know, my, who wants to listen to my stories or my family's stories or my, who want like, that's not as, because it hasn't been done before, it's not important, right? And then I realized because it hasn't been done before, it is important and it is, it is necessary and it is valuable. And my thoughts and ideas and opinions and experiences are just as valid as, you know, the, like the white dude who went to film school, right? And, and um, in fact, maybe right now, even more important because uh, they they haven't been seen and they and and so so many people uh, are underrepresented in a way that I can represent and and so I, I learned that in the last couple of years and that's something that my industry taught me that I don't think I would have learned outside of this um, very much you know and and um, and I think that like yeah just my my inherent like uh, um, 
I know no one else is better than me or worse than me. Ness uh, allows me to to operate under that you know feminist uh, mindset at all times, even if it's not coming from because of that, right? Like I just and I just believe that uh, from anybody. Like you, nobody is better than me. Also, nobody is inherently worse than me. <laughs> Some people are worse than me, but like not not most people. You know what I mean? Like right? Yeah. Um, I just have one quick last question that I like to ask all of our guests, and that is a pop cultural question. What you watching? I'm talking about movies and books and television and music and music videos. Anything that you are consuming pop culturally, we want to know it because it is probably cool. Natalie Morales, what you watching? I, um, I, I've been watching Feel Good. I am still uh, on season two. Don't, don't spoil it for me. Um, I, I actually have like not had, I'm watching Ted Lasso too. Um, like everybody else's, I have not had like a ton of TV or movie watching opportunity in the last month or two, because life has just been a little bit insane right now. I'm trying to find, um, only because I have a terrible, uh, memory. I'm trying to find the name of this book. Oh, I read this book recently that I loved called the Prince of Los Cucuyos, um, which is written by Richard Blanco, who was uh, Obama's inaugural poet um, one year. And it's, it was wonderful. It's such a really good book. It's, um, it's a memoir about uh, his life growing up in Miami, like literally in the neighborhood I grew up in. It was wild to read a book where I was like, hey, that's the Winn-Dixie on the corner of my house. You know, like it was so crazy. I, I, I ended up like annotating the whole book in, in, in what was similar to me because I was like, talking to my friends about it and they were like, I want to hear about that. I was like, I'll write all the notes down for you. I'm so excited for you to read this. Um, and so I read that recently, which I, I really loved. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I, um, that's, that's been, that's been the major thing. I've also been playing a lot of Rummy Cube, which is not in our current uh, landscape, but I'm recently very obsessed with Rummy Cube and have been playing Rummy Cube quite a lot. <laughs> Some things just help the brain. Yes, to I, I mean like definitely that. games help. Games and puzzles are a thing that my ADHD brain uh, like requires for sleep and function. So, well, thank you so much for being on the show. Like thank I you, said Emily. at Bus, we are such great admirers of your work. We're so excited to see whatever it is thank that you, you make so next. Much. And. Uh, I'm just going to take the briefest of breaks. And when I come back, I'm going to track down Callie. I'm going to ask her and she's going to ask me, what you watch it? Before we get back to the show, I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Wolfie Vibes Publicity. If you're working on a new project and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be, and you'll even have fun in the process. Get in touch via WolfieVibesPublicity.com for details and quotes, and tell them that Pop-Tart sent you. Essentially, I started it because every female comedian I know was amazing and hardworking and hilarious and I knew would make great podcasts. And every male comedian I know already had a podcast and was doing their own thing. 
Hi, I'm Kate Moldenhauer, the founder of More Banana Podcasts, a comedy podcast network entirely produced, hosted, and led by women. We have shows about politics. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. When the Supreme Court puts stuff on their calendar, they use the word docket. So their Google Calendar is a docket. Is a docket. So technically, I have a docket. You have a docket. We all have docket. We all have a docket. Sex? Welcome to my vagina. I'm Jesse Karen. This is Rebecca Frank. What were ancient Greek dildos made of, Jesse? They were made of padded leather and, yep, anointed with olive oil. Yep. <laughs> scams? I'm Caitlin I'm Rodney Smith. <laughs> and, and we, we love, love scams. scams. She tells them she's a German Russian heiress and she seems like she has a lot of money and people buy it. That's yeah. basically what's happening. So as soon as she got a loan, she would cash it as much as she could out before anybody caught on. Amazing. So smart. I mean, so smart. I mean, it's terrible, but like to take that money out immediately. Because women are actually pretty versatile and funny. More Banana is a network of women's voices, unfiltered and uninterrupted. Find us everywhere you get your podcasts and learn about our growing roster of shows at morebanana.com. Hey, Pop-Tart listeners, have you been trying to record your own podcast, but you keep getting bogged down by technical problems? Luscious Logan can take the raw recordings of your show, edit and produce them to give them that rich, full-body sound that you hear right now. If you have a deep need to express yourself and sound good in the process, reach Luscious Logan LusciousLogan13 at gmail.com. That's LusciousLogan13 at gmail.com. If you want to have that luscious sound. And we're back. And I'm back with Callie. Hi, Callie. Hey, hey, hey. Well, you were out and about uh, living in trees and living your best life. I interviewed Natalie Morales, and she was great. I love her. I'm jealous I wasn't here for that. But I was in a tree house, so that was nice. You loved Plan B, right? Yes, it was so good. Yeah, we we talked a bit about Plan B, and I, I told her how much we both loved it. I loved it. So now is the time in the program where I ask you, and hopefully you ask me, what you watching? Well, well, well. Well, I don't know if I have told our lovely listeners or not, but your girl over here is getting a divorce. So I'm watching a lot of divorce movies. And some are about, some are just crazy and some are just sad and some are motivational. Mm -hmm. One of the craziest ones, I, I had put like a Facebook thing up for ideas. And so somebody sent me a warm and scorned, the Betty Broderick story. Oh, I don't know that. It's on Amazon, and it's a true story, based on a true story. Um, this version of it was a like a two part TV thing, miniseries in the nineties, I think. Um, but so this is some crazy shit. It's a it's a true story about this lady that kills her ex husband and the wife that he had, had he was having an affair with his new wife. Oh shit! Um, that's no spoiler because it's a true story. <laughs> Uh-huh. But the crate she is totally batshit crazy. So she finds out that her husband, who's a lawyer, is cheating on her with his um assistant or something like that. And, and it's always the way. 
always the way. And they have kids and stuff. And this lady goes insane. Like she starts dropping the kids off one by one. I think they had three kids and not telling them, just leaving them outside the house. Just fucking brutal for the children. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Like who is that supposed to hurt? Right. And she goes, he gets like a new house and she goes over there and spray paints all over it, vandalizes it, and then drives her whole ass car into the front of the house. <laughs> While the kids are in the house. <gasps> She's just, and she wondered why she didn't get full custody. She's doing the most to say the least. She is doing the most to say the least. She left like hundreds of threatening messages, completely would ignore restraining orders, just batshit. And um, so she goes into the house one night after years of this and she she was claiming that because he was a lawyer she couldn't get anyone to represent her and that he sold the house out from under her without a permission and that she didn't wasn't getting enough money um and then she goes in the room while they're sleeping and takes the phone out the answer machine phone system and then shoots them both like fire several shots and then she tried to claim that it wasn't premeditated and it's like lady you took the whole phone out of the out of the room before you did it she ended up getting like 30 years it was a wild watch dude that sounds like when keeping it real goes wrong (laughs) right that was too extreme i am not that extreme then i watched under the tuscan sun on hulu with diane lane yeah who does she get it on with in that movie i'm trying to remember oh he was like some hot italian dude nice um but once again she gets cheated on her and in all of these movies, it's always like the lady that gets cheated on is a writer. Rude. <laughs> so well, that's because people get cheated on. They write books about it. And then the books get turned into movies. That's totally. Pro- yeah, because the Tuscan Sun was a book originally. Um, and Sandra Oh is in this and she plays the best friend who uh, is a lesbian who's pregnant. And um, her she's just the best character. She's totally like best friend vibes all the way because before she found out she got pregnant, she had asked, or she had bought t- tickets to go to Tuscany. And so then she, when uh, Diane Lane's character gets divorced, she's super depressed. And so the friend gives her the ticket and tells her to go by herself, and uh, which is just best friend goals. And then <laughs> while she's there, while Diane Lane is there, she just randomly decides to buy this little rundown villa, as one is wont to do. Must be nice. You know? And then, um, so it's like she's renovating her house. It was cute. Um, It was a rom. So, you know, it wasn't like my main vibe. But Sandra O's character was giving me life. And then I watched, which is all a vibe, everything, Death Becomes Her. The 1982 classic is on Classic. Callie, is that a dog sound that I hear? Are those little paw pads? Yeah, those are little paws dancing on the floor. You want me to paw? Oh, it's okay. I was just wondering what I was hearing. It was a cute sound. Yeah. Hold on. Let me pause and have the dogs go downstairs real quick. So then I watched the ultimate divorce classique, A Death Becomes Her, from 1982. It's on Peacock right now with Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn. I didn't know yeah. it was on Peacock. I'm going to watch that. Dude, it, was, it, it holds up. It's still as fucking good as I remembered it. Um, Isabella Rossellini, it plays well for the kids for the youths out there who haven't seen this, it's about um, Meryl Streep is a novelist, of course, that gets cheated on by an old friend of hers who's an actress, which is Goldie Hawn. 
And Meryl ends up in a mental hospital. And then when she was released, she goes to confront the couple. And um, Goldie Hawn noticed that she looks so, so, that she hasn't aged at all. And she looks amazing. And wants to find out what the secret is. And the secret is that the most amazing witch, Isabella Rossellini, um, gives these potions that keep people that same age for forever. Gives you eternal life. But of course, with eternal life, if you fuck yourself up, you're still alive, but fucked up. Oh, right. And Bruce Willis plays the husband, who's a plastic surgeon. And I did not know this was Bruce Willis. And I have seen this movie a million times. He looks yeah, so I didn't. I didn't remember him being in that movie. He's so he's so not important compared to the queens that are in that movie that I forgot that he was in it. Well, it's because he has hair in it. <laughs> <laughs> I did not recognize him with fucking hair, dude. And they end up like shooting each other. So Goldie has like a huge hole in her stomach. Uh, Goldie hits Meryl in the head with like a shovel and smushes her neck, and they have to keep repairing themselves. And Isabella Rossellini only wears giant necklaces as shirts. It is hilarious, and it totally holds up. Must watch. Amazing. Amazing. And then I watched this new series on Netflix called Brand New Cherry Flavor, which is more witchy vibes. And this one is crazy. It's like a horror kind of comedy, really, like, trippy scenes. It's it's a wild, wild ride. The first episode was really slow, and I almost gave up, but Lori at bus told me to keep on going till I got to The Witch, and The Witch is some crazy shit. <laughs> it's played by Katherine Keener. And oh, I love Katherine Keener. I didn't know she was so in that. good. It's a really, really weird. There's a lot of throwing up kittens. <laughs> it... it, it I can't even begin to explain how weird this movie is or the show is. And it's about this girl who made a student film and this like kind of director who hadn't had a hit in a while saw her student film and wanted to make it into a movie and then tried to get somebody else to direct it. And she wants vengeance. Revenge. And it is, it's really trippy. It's super psychedelic. You'll probably be concerned for the kittens. <laughs> You did, would definitely be concerned for the kittens. <laughs> and then the last thing I, I watched, which I just started, so I haven't, I don't even know if the whole series is up yet, is Only Murderers in the Building on Hulu. And check out the cast in this. It's Selena Gomez, Martin Short, and Steve Martin. The Martins. Legends. And, <laughs> you know, just that, those three alone, you know, that's like comic gold to me. And so it's three strangers who live in the building and they find out that they all are obsessed with the same true crime podcast. And oh. then a murder happens in their building and they decide to start doing their own true crime pod- podcast, attempting to figure out the murder. I haven't got far enough yet, but so far I like key. <laughs> and Emily, what have you been watching? Well, thank you so much for asking. I, um, binge watched the chair on netflix which is a this uh it's i would call it a dramedy um that is set yeah it's called the chair um because it surrounds um it stars sandra oh as the newly appointed first woman english department chair at fictional pembroke university 
So it's a comedy about, you know, like basically sexist fuckery in academia and like what happens when like a woman of color um, is is appointed a chair at like a, you know, a stodgy old school university and all of just like the sexism and the racism and like just sort of like the institutional um just like garbage that she has to wade through just to try to make it through her first semester as the chair um, of this English department. And um, so she's in it and her um, love interest in it is played by Jay Duplass uh, from Transparent. He does a pretty good job. Um, But I was really super blown away by Holland Taylor She's a, a, a somewhat older actress who's she was playing a, a Chaucer professor. You may also know her as the partner of Sarah Paulson. Oh, yes. So I'm sort of glad that that power couple is flexing a little bit with them both having big shows out. At I the absolutely same time. love that couple. They are so cute. <laughs> they are such an amazing power couple. And I, I loved Holland Taylor in the chair as well as Sandra. Oh, they were both great. But I checked in with my friends in academia and I was like, is it really so fucked up? And they're like, Oh, so much more fucked up. So, um, I enjoyed it. I believe it's coming back for a second season. Um, and then I watched the documentary, Bob Ross, happy accidents, betrayal and greed also on Netflix. Um, I don't know about you, but we watch a lot of joy of painting in my house. We're obsessed with Bob Ross. We're obsessed with his, his Afro. We're obsessed with his happy little trees. Um, and basically what he does with like painting an entire landscape in half an hour is basically witchcraft. And uh, <laughs> this documentary had us in its thrall because it was spilling the tea about how like he and his wife had like this very close business relationship with this other couple, the Kowalskis. And um, there was like a little bit of wife swappage happening. I don't know if it was on both sides, but he was definitely having an affair with like his business, the wife side of the business partnership, the other couple. And then there was all of this crazy intrigue because when he was dying, the Kowalskis were trying to like force him to sign over the rights to his name and his likeness to them when he was dying and he was like no that's for my son but he gave the rights sort of entrusted to his brother to sort of keep safe for his son because his son was still sort of a young man at the time when he was dying and then his brother just needed cash so when once he died his brother just handed it over to the Kowalskis for cash and it was all it was all about the dirty the the sordid underbelly of the joy of painting Bob Ross art supply yeah. empire. Mel had mentioned something. My friend Mel has the Bob Ross game. There's like a game where you you don't really paint, but you get pieces to, to form the painting or something like that. I haven't actually played it, but now she's so pissed that she owns that game because she feels like she contrib- contributed to the fuckery that happened to Bob Ross. Yeah, I have a Bob Ross doll and a Bob Ross painting kit, and I had no idea that that wasn't going to his progeny, Steve Ross, or like the Ross family in any way. It's just all going to the Kowalskis. That's so fucked up. Who were like harassing him to sign these legal documents that he didn't want to sign when he was dying. Oh, that's so rude. I know. And we all thought that we were helping keep the Bob Ross dream alive, but I don't know. It's I guess it's complicated. 
It's complicated. And, um, it's complicated um, that I was riveted by that documentary. And then because you told me to watch Manifest and another friend of mine also told me to watch it, I started watching it and it's dumb, but I also like it. Exactly. I got, I got hooked in. It sucks you yeah. the fuck in. And finally, um, I ha- did a head-to-head comparison, Kanye West's album Donda versus Drake's new album Certified Lover Boy. And... My assessment is that Drake wins. Drake made the better album. There were more bops. There were more. There was more interesting lyrical content, um, and that is that's my decision. Don't at me. I won't change my <laughs> mind. I haven't listened to either yet. I heard the Kanye album was insanely long. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that didn't factor into my decision. And everybody that I've seen talk about it online definitely says Drake's had more bops. Def more bobs. Um, and the last thing that I've been watching is the Majestic Pop-Tarts Patreon page. We yeah. made it because we need everyone's help to keep Bust alive. And hopefully you'll be excited by the goodies that we've hooked up for Pop-Tarts listeners at patreon.com slash Pop-Tarts podcast. Uh, Callie and I have typed up show notes exclusively for Patreon donors that include links to what everyone has been watching for all 116 episodes. We've got totally ad free episodes on there. There's exclusive content that includes our amazing episode with Big Frida that you can only hear on Patreon and more. Please check it out at patreon.com slash pop tarts podcast and help us keep the whole bust endeavor alive. At this point, I would like to say a thank you. Thank you, first of all, to our luscious producer and sound engineer, Logan Del Fuego. <sighs> Muy caliente. And, of course, to our girl gang at Bust Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems and on Instagram at Rems Emily, but you cannot find Callie on social media, so don't even try, right? Don't, don't, don't. You can, however, email both of us. I'm at emilyrems at bust.com. Callie W at bust.com. And you can learn more about this show at bust.com slash pop tarts. Finally, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us get the word out, and we super duper appreciate it. Until next time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Callie, those little dog feet were making me laugh.